It's all kicking off. Nadim Zahawi, former chancellor, chair of the Conservative Party, while he was chancellor, made a deal with HMRC to pay them up to a million pounds in fines for late payment of tax. It's not looking good. At the same time, Boris Johnson has his own scandal. And I think actually really a scandal for the BBC, which is that their chairman, the BBC's chair, before they were appointed to the job by Boris Johnson, helped Boris Johnson get a loan of £800,000. It's all pretty sordid. And we're going to go through it detail by detail tonight. I'm joined by Ash Sarkar to talk about the implications. How are you doing? I'm good. It's a pretty classic corruption Big sleaze establishment, all in it together kind of week, isn't it? It's all of a theme. Former Chancellor and current chair of the Conservative Party, Nadim Zahawi, is fighting for his political life. That's after details emerged of what looks just a little like tax avoidance on his part. Last week, it was revealed that Zahawi was forced to pay HMRC a £5 million settlement for unpaid tax, including a penalty thought to be around a million pounds. We now know this deal was struck all while he was Chancellor of the Exchequer. That's right, the man who was responsible for setting your tax bill was all the while coming to a deal with HMRC to settle for millions in unpaid tax. Zahawi claims the failure to pay tax was all down to carelessness, not an active desire to avoid tax. Now, I suppose these things are just bound to happen when you're planting millions of pounds in offshore accounts based in tax havens. Who hasn't done that? Easy mistake to make. Now, we're going to go into more details of the story in a moment. First, though, let's take a look at the lengths government ministers are going to avoid those details. Foreign Secretary James Cleverley appeared on the BBC this weekend, where he refused to answer basic questions on the Zahawi case. Laura Koonsberg asked him why. This issue has been going on for a long time. It's been a huge matter of political discussion in the last few days. You knew you were coming on to do this interview this morning, and you've told us, You don't know whether or not he paid a penalty. You don't know whether he sorted out his tax affairs while he was the chancellor when he was actually the tax man's boss, which I think many people would think is a blatant conflict of interest. And you don't know whether he discussed it with the prime minister. Can I ask you, is that because you don't want to know because it's uncomfortable to talk about this? Or if it's because Nadim Zahawi is keeping keeping this to himself? Because our viewers might wonder... How on earth are you here talking for the government about this this morning when you don't have answers to what are really straightforward questions? Well, because, Laura, I spent the whole of uh, last week in the United States of America and in Canada having on Monday just made a statement about the execution of a British dual national by the brutal Iranian regime. I arrived mm-hmm. uh, back in the UK early on, uh, <clears throat> early on Friday morning uh, on an overnight flight before then going on to engage with my constituents uh, through Friday and uh, having a bit of a a bit of a rest and doing some shopping on Saturday. I can't talk about the biggest political scandal of the year so far and because I was having a rest and doing some shopping. Now, of course, Cleverly was just following in the footsteps of his boss just last week. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak told Parliament that Zahawi had, quote, already addressed this matter in full. But as of today, he seems to have changed his mind. Integrity and accountability is really important to me. And clearly in this case, there are questions that need answering. And that's why I've asked our independent advisor 
to get to the bottom of everything, to investigate the matter fully and establish all the facts and provide advice to me on Nadeem Zahawi's compliance with the ministerial code. I'm pleased that Nadeem Zahawi has agreed with that approach and has agreed to fully cooperate with that investigation. You can decide whether Mr Zahawi stays or goes. Why don't you ask him to stand down? Well, I think it's important that we do these things professionally. Integrity and accountability is really important to me, but it's also important that we do these things properly. And that's why the independent advisor has been asked to fully investigate this matter and provide advice to me on Nadine Zahawi's compliance with the ministerial code. And on the basis of that, we'll decide on the appropriate next steps. But Nadine Zahawi has agreed to fully cooperate with that investigation. Now, it's not clear when that investigation will report, but according to Sunak, Zahawi will remain in post as party chair while it's carried out. And if you think Sunak's reply was pretty unsatisfying, you're not the only one. In response to the story, Labour's Angela Rayner tabled an urgent question in the House of Commons. Number 10 apparently still doesn't know if other ministers are in dispute over their own taxes. So what is the Prime Minister doing about it? Last week, he told the House all questions had been answered and he, and he was told that there was no outstanding issues. Yet now, the independent advisor is investigating. Oh, yeah. So will he publish the terms of reference? And why does the Prime Minister need an advisor to tell him that this conduct is unethical? Yeah. If this if this breach isn't a breach, if this isn't a breach of the ministerial code, surely the code itself is wrong, Mr Speaker, and it's the Prime Minister's job to fix it. If the Prime Minister came clean about what he knew and when and took responsibility for the conduct of his own cabinet, would we need yet another investigation into another exactly. member of his top team, even now? Number 10 says the party chair retains the Prime Minister's full confidence. How can the Prime Minister claim to deliver the integrity, professionalism and accountability that he promised while his Conservative Party chair still sits in his cabinet? Yeah. Earlier today, I spoke to Robert Palmer. He's CEO of Tax Justice UK, an organisation campaigning for a fairer tax system. I began by asking him to explain exactly how Zahawi is alleged to have avoided paying his tax. So the first thing today is it's really difficult to know exactly what went on because the information in the public is patchy. And so it'd be great to have more transparency from Zahawi and the government about exactly the details. Um, from what we can tell, he set up uh, YouGov, a really successful polling company in the early 2000s. And half of the founder shares were owned by an offshore Gibraltar company called Balshore. And I think at the heart of the dispute is who was the beneficiary, who benefited from this offshore trust, offshore company that owned half of YouGov. And Zahari has sort of changed his tune uh, during the course of this process. At some point, he said, oh, it was my father who was the beneficiary. And given that he's now settled a very substantial tax bill, it seems as though it was him, Zahari, who uh, at least had some ownership or some benefit from these shares. I mean, I think the key thing for me is that it feels and it seems as though he was, you know, the, what he said is he made a mistake. He didn't re perhaps report all the information or all the, all the tax that was owed. And now he's had to pay £5 million, which is a lot of money, 
And according to The Guardian, up to a million pounds of that is a penalty and a fine. He's got the penalty and a fine, perhaps for not being as upfront as he could have been with the tax authorities. Again, it's slightly unclear exactly what went, uh, what went on. The, the basic thing is that there was this huge amount of money that he earned. He should have paid tax on it. He now has paid tax and he's paid a big fine because of how late he was in paying the tax and coming up. Um, with the answers. I mean, either he actively tried to avoid paying tax or he was just careless. It does seem to be the case that HMRC realised this, he now has paid and they fined him. So I suppose separate from the ethics of what Zahari has done, is this a story about HMRC not being that bad at doing its job? Are they actually fairly capable of collecting tax from the super rich? Uh, Well, it seems as though HMRC has gotten the case after a good deal of media attention uh, last year. And there is a problem with HMRC. You know, HMRC doesn't have the resources it needs to go after people like Zahari. And money has been diverted to Brexit, to COVID, to the pandemic, which has meant that HMRC has brought in less money last year than it has done in the past. And uh, HMRC staff are actually going on strike later this year because, you know, they're concerned with their paying conditions. And this is a, you know, ongoing problem we see with this government, you know, not investing enough in public services. And if you're going to invest in any public services, it might seem boring, but investing in the tax authority is a great way of bringing in even more money than you invest. But this government hasn't done that. Yeah, I mean, that really is going to be money that pays for itself, isn't it? If you invest in the guys who, who collect it. But I want to talk about another tax controversy that this government had. Obviously, this is from a little while back. And I want to know if, if you think they're related anyway. So people, again, are talking about Rishi Sunak's wife once having non-DOM status. So we've got the chair of the Conservative Party and the leader of the Conservative Party and Prime Minister, both having been involved in, in tax controversies. Do you see the two as sort of related in any way? Yeah, I think there's a bigger picture. We've got wealthy, powerful politicians um, who have been able to use the system in various different ways, um, in a way that most of us can't. You know, at the moment, we're in January. Uh, Lots of people are filing their own taxes. You know, most taxpayers out there don't have the ability to avoid declaring £27 million to HMRC or have non-DOM status and therefore pay less tax in the UK. So this is a problem. I think it's a political problem for the government. But it also talks to a bigger problem with how our tax system is set up. If you are rich and powerful, you get to play by a different set of rules than the rest of us. And that's not fair. And I think it will be politically damaging for the government. And I want to talk a bit about how this story has been exposed. There's a journalist, Dan Needle, who last year was reporting on this or, or trying to investigate this. And he was subject to some pretty harsh legal threats from Zahawi's lawyers. And I know you work in this field. I wanted to know, is this, is this usual that if there are citizen journalists or journalists or, or campaign groups who try and investigate the tax affairs of the super rich, they end up getting letters from lawyers basically threatening them with, with huge libel cases if they are to, to continue investigating? I mean, the short answer is yes. Any campaigner or journalist will have been on the end of countless threatening letters from lawyers. You know, they're almost you know, outraged and hysterical, the sort of like copy and paste, the boilerplate, we are outraged, the damages that you are doing is incalculable, we will take further action. Um, And I think what's been really interesting about this case is there's uh, someone called Dan Needle, as you talked about, who was a lawyer and now runs a think tank. 
And he, as a lawyer, uh, he, he published these letters. And I think that's really powerful because it's just lifted a lid on how many rich and powerful people currently use the libel laws to silence journalists, to silence campaigners. Um, and what's interesting about this case is Dan Needle managed to get a response from the people who regulate solicitors to say, actually, this type of threatening behavior is unacceptable. And so maybe we'll see some progress. But the UK is known as an absolute capital of, of libel law, where the rich and the powerful use the law courts to try and silence journalists and campaigners, often with success. And I think part of it is about actually getting to court, but most of it is about what journalists and others and campaigners do to self-censor, to say, oh, actually, that's a bit risky. Oh, we can't quite publish that. And I think it has a really uh, negative impact on journalism and campaigning in this country. That was Robert Palmer speaking to me earlier this afternoon. We're going to stick with this story. Tory tax rows have electrified Westminster, but will anyone in the real world care? Well, one sign a political story matters is if it breaks out into broader popular culture. So I think the Tories might be concerned about this exchange on ITV's This Morning. He has suggested during this speech which he gave in Morecambe in Lancashire that only idiots, to quote his word, wouldn't understand why he can't cut taxes. Now, this is particularly relevant at the moment. So we have Sunak's wife who claimed, because you have to actively do this, a non-DOM status. You have to apply to HMRC to pay a flat fee of £30,000 a year. Yeah. This is estimated when this was discovered by journalists last year. She said, oh, right, I, I won't do that again. That she uh, would have paid up to £20 million in tax, wow. which has not... No one has said, oh, sorry about that, we'll now pay it. Right. That's the first thing. And at the moment, as you know, front pages all the time, Nadim Sahawi. Uh, so Nadim Sahawi, he, he set up YouGov, he co-founded it, didn't take shares, he put it into a trust, mm -hmm. and therefore it is estimated that he avoided £3.7 million in tax. Now, a friend of mine who's a tax lawyer had... Uh, gone on to this about eight months ago. Dan Needle, his name is, he's wonderful. And he went on to it about eight months ago. Um, Zahawi's lawyers then, then wrote to Dan to say, stop saying this stuff. Dan, as a lawyer, then reported them to the Solicitor's Regulatory Authority because they were threatening he shouldn't say anything about it. And lo and behold, you now see the headlines where he has actively gone to HMRC and offered well, to pay this that money. that seatbelt chat escalated quite yeah, a bit. They did, well, didn't they? Well, obviously, they're, they're, not here to, they're not here to defend themselves. It's. But they're all corrupt! <laughs> well, yes. That was so good. I love Alison Hammond. Clearly what happened there is, you know, on the on the earpieces, the, pro the producers were saying, look, there's 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 no one here to respond. Normally, if you're putting forward an allegation, you need to have, well, this is the official position from Nadeem Zahawi or, or the government or whatever. In response, they try and intervene, but Alison Hammond doesn't seem to be able to control herself and shouts out what she clearly believes, which is they're all corrupt. Ash, Carol Vorderman is on the case. Um, she is on top of this story. She's been tweeting about it a lot. And I mean, that, I think, instinctive reaction from Alison Hammond hosting ITVs this morning, is that going to have the Tories worried? Yeah, it's absolutely going to have the Tories worried. And I'm going to tell you why. First is that 
Rishi Sunak is too weak to be able to deal with this effectively. His support within the Conservative Party is very, very shaky indeed, because he was the losing candidate. He wasn't the guy who the majority of the party wanted to get behind. You still have conservative benches which are deeply divided. You've got the kind of technocrats who've rallied around Sunak. You've still got a bunch of libertarian headbangers who think that the problem is that you know, real trussism was never truly tried anywhere. And you've got a bunch of people who are wondering if there's a path back for Boris Johnson. So this isn't a stable basis for Rishi Sunak to either, you know, properly reprimand Zahawi and force him to step down or count on the support of enough of his party so he can ride out this kind of scandal. So that's the first reason why it's worrying for the Conservative Party. The second, and I think the most important one, is you take a step back and you look at the overall political climate. Everyone knows that the Tories, they drove the economy into a wall by trying to push through wholly unwanted and uncosted tax cuts, which would have disproportionately benefited the rich. And now pretty much everybody who isn't very well off, you know, I'm talking owning your home outright well off is suffering because of it. It's either interest rates on their mortgage, interest rates on a landlord's mortgage being pushed on in the form of rent and the increased cost of living absolutely everywhere. So against that backdrop, when you've got what's essentially been, you know, standard operating practice for the Conservative Party for the past 10 years, which is use your position to to yourself, use the fact that you are wealthy and you are powerful to insulate yourself from the kinds of accountability that regular ordinary folk are subject to, you know, using the VIP lane in order to dole out contracts to your friends. And in some cases, such as, uh, you know, with the likes of Michelle Moan, even to yourself within this context of a cost of living crisis where everybody is seeing their living standards fall. The political cover is no longer there in the same way. So you've got a a structurally weak prime minister at the helm of a, you know, simmeringly mutinous party. You've got the fact that the press and the public have turned against the Conservative Party in huge numbers. I mean, you're talking about a 20-point polling gap between the Tories and Labour. Now you've got a story like this, which seems to sum the whole thing up. Us lot, you know, the law protects but does not bind, and you lot, the law binds but does not protect. And that is a feeling of unfairness, which crosses party lines. It doesn't matter whether you're a Labour voter or a Tory voter. You look at that and you go, this stinks to high heaven. There's three scandals at the moment. There's Rishi Sunak's seatbelt, which I don't think is a particularly big issue. Boris Johnson and the BBC, which is pretty outrageous, um, but I think, you know, refers essentially to a previous prime minister. And then there's this Zahawi one. And when these all erupted, I was a little bit worried in a way, because one thing I think has been relatively healthy about political discourse recently, it's been forced into position by very, very dire, terrible situations. But we're actually talking about public services. We're actually talking about policy. People seem to be recognizing that austerity did destroy the health service and really degrade society as a whole. So it feels like we're talking about the stuff that matters. And I was a bit worried all these scandals come up. Are we just going to get to this who broke what rules? The moment I hear 
you know, Chris Mason, the BBC political editor, you know, this is not his fault, but the moment I hear him sort of say, this has been referred to the independent ethics advisor, I feel like, oh my God. Like the moment I hear that phrase, I almost switch off. But I think that this does matter and it matters because I think it's about tax, right? So what I'm saying here, the big story, and it should remain a big story, is that people are having to wait two hours for an ambulance when they've had a heart attack or a stroke, right? That is the biggest story in Britain right now. But then you take a step back. Why are we in that position? Oh, it's because the government hasn't spent enough money on the NHS. Why haven't they spent enough money on the NHS? Well, one, because they're reluctant to borrow to invest, which itself is a little bit economically disastrous, a bit self-defeating. But just as important, perhaps more important, they're not willing to raise taxes on the super rich. If we raise taxes on the super rich, we'd have more than enough to pay everyone properly in the NHS. We wouldn't have to be threatening nurses and saying, well, if we pay you more, that's going to have to come from elsewhere in the healthcare budget. We wouldn't be making ambulance drivers and teachers compete for a small pot of money. No, we'd be taxing the people who've got, by the way, much, much richer over the course of the pandemic and over the last year. I think asset wealth went up by a trillion pounds last year. So there's a lot of money we could be taxing so that we don't have a society in which public services are completely collapsing. And the fact that we have, as prime minister, someone whose wife was a non-dom, remember that family is worth about 700 million pounds. The fact that we have as chair of the governing party, someone who you know, accidentally forgot to pay three million pounds of tax, which just so happened to be due on a bunch of money which he'd placed in a tax haven, this shows you what side they're on and also why the big block to rescuing our public services is that the people in charge don't think paying tax is important. They haven't been particularly willing to cough up themselves, even though they are in the top 0.1%. And then we can't really expect them to raise taxes on the rest of the super rich because they're not willing to pay it themselves. I mean, do you think that's the real story here, Ash? And do you think this is what I suppose... Labour or the left or whoever need to keep bringing this back to. Let's not let this get bogged down in the whole, what does the ethics advisor say? This is a question about rich people not being willing to pay tax at the same time that we are seeing an absolute crisis in the NHS. I both agree with you and disagree with you a bit, Michael. So I agree with you that getting stuck in the weeds about the, oh, the independent ethics advisor, that's not something which has cut through. And the reason why it doesn't have cut through is because it's number one, incredibly boring. And number two, it has zero impact on anybody's quality of life. All right. Absolutely nobody's. However, when you look back through Conservative Party history and you cast your mind back to the halcyon days of the 1990s, can you name one John Major sleaze story, an individual sleaze story from the John Major era? I was quite a young child. No, I can't name one. Wasn't there, did we know about Edwina Curry at the time or was that later on? I mean, is that even a scandal? Was that just a bog standard affair? I don't know. Later on, I mean, like one of the ones I can think of, I think, is Cash for Questions. But yeah, that was look, that. the individual John Major sleaze stories, it doesn't matter. And it didn't really matter at the time. What matters is when you've got the accumulation of sleaze stories, which you do have with the Conservative Party, you've got VIP Lane, you've got Michelle Moan, you've got contracts being handed out willy-nilly during the pandemic, you've got Nadim Zahawi, and you've now got this Boris Johnson thing. That adds up to a kind of miasma of corruption, the sense of they're all piggies in the trough. And even if you can't 
nail down on election day which of the stories it was that really got your goat. The overall feel, the vibe, the mood music, I think is something which is incredibly important and impactful. And and one of the things that I'm going to say, and this is a really big difference between the UK and the US, is that we have huge poll movement in this country compared to the US. In the US, um, presidential elections can be decided on the basis of 0.9%. You know, the kind of poll movement that you see is, you know, if there's a, you know, poll swing of, you know, two or 3%, you're like, wow, what the fuck? That's massive. We're looking at a 20 point gap between Labour and the Conservatives. That is absolutely ginormous. Now, of course, you can expect that to narrow when it comes to a general election, but that is an absolutely huge swing. And having these stories about the Conservative Party is not going to hurt Labour's chances at all. It adds up to that mood music. Now, where I think you're coming from, and this is where I agree with you as well, on what basis do people make their political decisions? Ultimately, I think one of the reasons why there is a avenue back for Boris Johnson is because he was forced to quit on a matter that didn't impact the lives of ordinary people in this country. It was over a Westminster sex pest scandal. And obviously what uh, Christopher Pincher was alleged to have done was absolutely awful and indefensible, but it's not something like presiding over disastrous economic policy. Now, of course, austerity, the handling of the pandemic, those were all things that were disastrous. But it that wasn't what forced him out of power. So I think that that's why there's you know potentially a route back. But all of these stories that are being laid on Rishi Sunak's door, from Nadim Zahawi, which is on the Westminster end, to the continuing cost of living crisis, which is much more in the this affects the public end, he's got really not very much room to manoeuvre at all. He's going to find it really difficult. But like I was saying, the basis on which things happen, I think is important. What you want is for people to be raising the hue and cry of austerity and what's happening to public services. The fact that the workers' share of wealth has declined over the last few decades, whereas the ability of oligarchs and corporations to extract profit and stash it in tax havens, it's easier than ever before. We want people to be voting on that basis. And you want that to be the level of political consciousness, not because that forces the conservatives hand, but but because that forces Labour's hand. So I agree with you that what you want is for that wider economic story to be the basis on which people make their political decisions. But ultimately, stories like this, they're not going to hurt Labour. They're not going to hurt Labour one bit. Next story. Sharon Graham is the General Secretary of the Union Unite. They represent part of the striking ambulance workforce. In an interview over the weekend, Graham told Sky that the government's approach to negotiations with NHS staff has been so woeful that she's starting to think something very sinister might be going on. This employer, being the government, is not interested in doing a deal as far as the NHS is concerned. And I have to say, we are concluding now that there must be a much more sinister reason for this because this level of self-harm is unprecedented. The public are crying out. I, I came here in a cab this morning and the cab driver was saying, why don't they just give a pay rise to the NHS? Everybody wants that to happen. It's almost like there is another reason for them doing what they're doing because it's total incompetence otherwise. What do you think that reason is then? Well, I think that they are looking to privatise the NHS. 
genuinely, I believe that they're, they're looking as this is the moment they can privatise the NHS. I said when I was on your programme the last time that I was very concerned about the Chancellor who was the health secretary who wanted the NHS in the American trade deal. And there was a big fight about making sure it wasn't in the American trade deal. There is something unusual going on here that they will not come to the table. There are choices that can be made that means we can pay for this. That is not, there is not a problem about paying with the fifth richest country in the world. There is something going on here. Otherwise they are at a level of incompetence not known, I mean, because it's unreal. It's a big claim to say the government is looking to privatise mm. the NHS, and that goes against everything that they've said about the NHS remaining free at the point of use. I mean, Labour are prepared to countenance more private sector involvement in the, in the NHS right now uh, than the government. You know, do you have any evidence to back this up? Because I guess what they would say is, look, at the, at the minute, we're, we're spending more on debt interest than education. This is why there has to be pay restraint. Well, actions speak louder than words to me. So words, uh, you know, words are cheap. Um, there is a crisis in the NHS. They can come to the table and negotiate on this crisis. All the general secretaries, including me, have said we will be there anytime, any place, anywhere. We'll cancel any meeting to be there in that room. He is the CEO of this group of workers and he refuses to come to the table. Now, it's either that he doesn't know what to do when he gets to that table. I mean, maybe he doesn't know how to negotiate. I don't know. Maybe it's that there is another issue going on. But we have to look at what's happening. Why would they not be coming to the table and deal with this issue? Everyone is crying out for them to get this issue solved. And unless they solve the issue of workers and the crisis of workers in NHS and those people leaving the NHS, we will never be able to get the NHS back on its knees. And they know that. That was Sharon Graham suggesting the reason the Tories aren't putting a stop to the crisis in the NHS is that they want to privatise it. She's saying if, if they cared about the NHS, they'd make a deal with the nurses and the ambulance drivers. But their refusal to come to the negotiating table means that there's potentially something more sinister going on. Her only explanation is that they actively want to or are willing to collapse the NHS so that they can privatise it. Is she right, though? Well, a former Tory health secretary and chancellor hasn't given us many reasons to feel reassured. Sajid Javid has published this essay in The Times. We need to agree a new NHS future or the 1948 dream dies. Now, remember, the Tories opposed the NHS in 1948. So the idea this is their dream is a little bit far-fetched. The subheading, only a cross-party consensus and an honest talk with British people can deliver reforms needed for a national duel to survive. Again, kind of pretending. I think that he cares about that national jewel. Let's get on to the argument. He says, for the NHS, when faced with excess demand, the only rationing mechanism is to make people wait. This is not the norm in any comparable country. Across Europe, we see different versions of a contributory principle to complement public financing. This helps providers manage demand and direct it to more efficient methods of supply. Take Ireland where some people are entitled to free healthcare through the public system based on household income. Others must pay nominal fees. One such is a €75 euro charge if you attend an injury unit without a referral from a GP. If you have the referral, the service is free. The advantage of this system is people take active steps to assess whether their demand for frontline services is required. Too often we hear doctors and nurses frustrated at people making unnecessary trips to frontline services, which takes time from other patients. Would the same level of demand exist here if this Irish model were adopted? This extends to GP appointments. In Norway and Sweden, a visit to the GP comes with a contribution of about £20. For some people, like my parents, that is a noticeable part of the weekly budget. But as demonstrated by so many other countries, it is possible to means test this provision. So he wants to reduce charges and means testing into the NHS. 
Javid also goes on to approvingly cite the German social health insurance model. Universal health care in Germany is achieved by individuals opting into either various public or various private health insurance schemes. Now, someone not impressed with Javid's suggestions is Gordon Brown. He wrote this response piece in The Guardian. Mark my words, this will be the end of the NHS if the Tories have their way. Subheading, they are now openly contemplating a more privately funded healthcare system. It wouldn't just be unfair. It makes no economic sense. And he argues this. Sajid Javid, a former Chancellor and Health Secretary, has written approvingly of the £20 fee that some European countries charge for visits to the GP. He labels Ireland's €75 or £66 bill for attending an A&E without a GP's referral as merely nominal, as if it's so modest that a higher charge would be more appropriate. And he calls for a national debate on the contribution private financing can make to healthcare. But the direction in which the Conservatives are travelling is already clear. The sick would pay for being sick and charging would force, as has happened with GP and hospital fees in France, the better off sections of the population to take out private insurance, inevitably creating in its wake a two-tier healthcare system. He goes on to say of the Conservatives, their desire to break with the British model is not only morally concerning, it would also be very costly and economically wasteful. Never do NHS doctors or nurses have to ask sick patients, quote, who is paying for this? When we leave the hospital or GP surgery, we are not pursued by bills or subject to complex negotiations with insurance companies or legal threats. But as the overseas experience of billing and means testing shows, charges not only mean higher administration and collection costs and thus raise far less than is predicted, they also discourage the sick from seeking treatment until too late when more severe problems require not only more intensive but more expensive interventions. Gordon Brown in that piece, which is worth reading, I think, goes on to make the case for modernization in the way the NHS is run but says the best way to fund it is still through progressive taxation and for a publicly managed system, publicly managed healthcare provision. Are the Tories trying to privatise the NHS? The simple answer is yes. Now, the reason why I say that is because privatisation can refer to many different aspects of how the NHS is run. So one aspect of that is an increased role for private healthcare providers. That's already happening. So you're seeing uh, many scans taking place, lots of tests taking place, which are being run by privatized companies. That's That's already happening. Bits of the NHS, which are profitable for private companies, have long been sold off. Now, when it comes to the question of whether the NHS will continue to be free at the point of use for every British citizen. That is the direction of travel ideologically for the Conservative Party. If you look at what's coming out from the Tufton Street think tank ecology of the Institute for Economic Affairs or Taxpayers Alliance, they've long said the thing that needs to happen is that there is some degree of patient contribution. So higher prescription charges, paying for hospital uh, visits, paying for GP visits. That's what's going on in terms of the think tank world, which is influencing conservative MPs, policymakers, ministers. That's something which they've wanted to do for a really long time. So it's not surprising that Sajid Javid is trying to turn the present crisis 
of the NHS, where every single person in this country broadly agrees that it needs more funding, that funding's got to come from somewhere, trying to turn that crisis to the advantage of his ideological bedmates. Now, there isn't an appetite for it. I think getting people to pay for a GP visit or an A&E visit is very much a bridge too far. That is, you know, such a big not just political and economic shift from the founding principles of the NHS, but it's also a pretty big cultural and psychological shift from what we think of the NHS as being. So I don't think that this is something that's got uh, legs in it. And it's one of those things that can also happen. The more you talk about a policy, the more unpopular it can become. Now, I read that Gordon Brown article, Michael, and there was lots in there that I agreed with, but there was a big honking omission from the article, which is that Gordon Brown, when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer and later on Prime Minister during the new Labour years, oversaw a great deal of private involvement with the NHS. Now, it is totally true that new Labour significantly increased NHS funding and waiting times drastically reduced. But you also had a massive role for the private sector, most notably with private finance initiatives. Now, if you cast your mind back, I think this might have been uh, four or five years ago. Do you remember the collapse of Carillion, which was one of those big super duper outsourcing companies? The collapse of Carillion, which had taken on a lot of these private finance contracts within the NHS sector, endangered the upkeep and the running of NHS hospitals. So, you know, yes, good thing, Gordon Brown, that you're talking about privatization. Yes, good thing, Gordon Brown, that you're talking about keeping the NHS free at the point of use. But unless there is some recognition within labor circles that their own governments have contributed to this crisis of the NHS, which which is exacerbated by the extraction of profit by the private sector, you're, you're not going to be able to, I think, adequately fix the problem down the road. And in fact, when you look at the way in which the likes of West Streeting are going, the likelihood is you're going to, you know, repeat the same mistakes again, expecting a different outcome. I'm not an expert on this, but when it comes to the NHS, I think I am quite sympathetic to New Labour. And I mean, the reason I say that is because if you look at the outcomes, the outcomes were really good. And, you know, what the Tories will say and what, you know, lots of people say, you know, it's not just you either have the NHS or you have sort of the hellscape, which is American healthcare. And that, uh, that's true. There are a lot of other options. There are countries which provide universal healthcare to a high standard where you don't have everything completely publicly owned, most of the continent, for example. I mean, I think this is entirely cynical what the Tories are trying to do. There's the old Noam Chomsky line that what you'll try and do is run down services and then try and privatise them. I mean, you, you couldn't have a more clear example of that. But when it comes to New Labour and Gordon Brown, I don't think what they actually wanted to do, like Sajid Javid, was ideologically deconstruct the NHS. And I think if you bring in a few, I feel just a bit agnostic about it. If you bring in a few private companies here and there and you massively get waiting lists down, fair play to you. Am I being too... Am I being too easy on on new labor here? So the point I'm making is that different kinds of privatization have different effects, right? So if you introduce GP charges or A&E charges, that has an immediate and negative effect on patients. Because one, it starts costing you money to be sick. It's essentially a tax on the sick, the long-term disabled, and the elderly, which is deeply regressive, and it also discourages people from seeking healthcare when they need it. Now, that is an immediate 
short-term negative impact, then it also has long-term impacts as well in terms of the overall health of the country. Now, something like PFI delivered the immediate result of going, okay, well, how can we get investment in the NHS up without having to increase the tax burden, which was kind of the new labor strategy. And yes, in the short and the medium term, it delivered on those things. But when you look at the overall picture of one, the sort of leeching of public money into the private sector, which means that overall things cost a lot more. It's like you're buying it on, you know, buy now, pay later. Overall, you're paying more to the private sector. And two, when you look at the vulnerability of these services, when you farm bits out to the private sector. So if you do have one of these outsourcing firms collapse, or one of the things we know about outsourcing firms is that they're so, they subcontract out and they subcontract out and they subcontract out. And the need to deliver profit at any means necessary means that ultimately you do get cut corners and cutbacks and worse quality services and maintenance being delivered with very, you know, foggy chains of accountability. Those are things which I think medium term and long term are really bad for the NHS. So I totally hear you on New Labour did what they said they'd do. They got those waiting lists down. They did that very well. But those seeds of um, of crisis, really, that was looming when Carillion collapsed, those were planted by a New Labour government. And I, and I think that if the thing that we agree on is we want more funding for the NHS, well, sure we do. We also want an NHS which has got long-term sustainability and isn't going to, you know, lurch into another private finance disaster. Let's go to our final story. Richard Sharp is the chairman of the BBC. The former Goldman Sachs banker was appointed to the role by then Prime Minister Boris Johnson in January of 2021. But it's now emerged that in the run-up to that appointment, Sharp had been advising Johnson about his personal finances and appears to have helped him secure a loan of up to £800,000 to finance his lavish lifestyle. The Sunday Times broke the story reporting this. Late in 2020, Johnson, 58, was in financial trouble as he faced divorce payments, childcare costs and bills for the refurbishment of his Downing Street flat. Sharp, a friend and former advisor to the politician who has given £400,000 to the Conservative Party, became involved that November after a dinner at the home of Sam Blythe, an old friend in West London. Blythe, 67, a multi-millionaire Canadian businessman and distant cousin of Johnson, is said to have raised the idea of acting as the PM's guarantor and asked Sharp for advice on the best way forward. So we have Boris Johnson's choice for BBC chair being asked by a distant cousin of Boris Johnson how he can help secure Johnson alone. Very bizarre, cosy world. You're going to get a description of there. Anyway, what happened next? So after those meetings, in the first week of December 2020, Sharp took Blythe's offer to Simon Case. He's the cabinet secretary and the head of the civil service. At that point, Sharp was already on the shortlist for the top BBC job. In fact, just a few weeks before ITV's Robert Peston wrote this in The Spectator, so who will be BBC chair? When would-be applicants ring ministerial chums? Their stock response is, don't waste your time applying. The PM has made up his mind. It will be Richard Sharp. So it was widely known that Sharp was Johnson's preferred candidate, a fact that Johnson made official in late December. 
Yet, Simon Kay, so this is the top civil servant, seemed to think there were no ethical problems with Sharp helping Boris Johnson secure a loan. A little bit complicated. It's all going to become clear, don't worry. The Sunday Times goes on to report this. According to Whitehall sources, Case agreed to Blythe helping and instigating a due diligence process, but told Sharp his involvement needed to end. In parallel, Johnson went to see Case to tell him Sharp had been helping him and received the same response. So Case saying, it's all fine up to now, but please you know, cut off these relationships now, given he's going to become the BBC chair. That warning from the cabinet secretary didn't stop Sharp Johnson and the loan guarantor Blythe from meeting up for dinner. This again is from the Sunday Times. Before the loan was finalised, Johnson, Sharp and Blythe had a private dinner at Chequers, the Prime Minister's grace and favour home in the Chiltern Hills in Buckinghamshire, where according to a source, they ate chop suey and drank wine. The free insists that Johnson's finances were not discussed. Johnson's loan was finalised in February 2021, the same month that Richard Sharp started in his new role as chair of the BBC. But Johnson never declared Sharp's involvement in sorting out his finances. It doesn't appear in either the MP's register of interests or in Johnson's register of ministerial interests. And Richard Sharp never mentioned it either. Johnson, of course, denies any wrongdoing. This is a load of complete nonsense, absolute nonsense. Let me just, let me just tell you, Richard Sharp is a good and a wise man, uh, but he knows absolutely nothing about my personal finances. I can tell you that for, for 100% ding-dang sure. This is just another example of the BBC disappearing up its own fundament. And that, I propose, is... is so it's just a coincidence that this appointment was arranged at the same time as your loan? That was Johnson very proudly wearing his hat. I presume he just got from Ukraine. He obviously goes to Kiev anytime there is any political problems at home for him. And while Richard Sharp also denies that there's anything to see here, he's asked the BBC to investigate whether there have been any conflicts of interest since he joined as chair in 2021. Meanwhile, the Commissioner for Public Appointments, whose job it is to ensure that public appointments are above board, has launched his own investigation. The Commissioner has written to Lucy Powell MP to confirm he will be reviewing the competition for the BBC Chair appointment to ensure it was conducted in line with the Governance Code for Public Appointments. So Lucy Powell, a Labour MP, so they've asked the Commissioner to investigate and they have obliged. When Prime Minister Rishi Sunak was asked about Sharp's appointment, he understandably seemed pretty keen to distance himself from it. Will you order some sort of probe into the appointment of Richard Sharp as BBC chairman and his relationship to the former prime minister? Well, this appointment was obviously made by one of my predecessors before I became prime minister. And the appointments process itself, though, for appointing the BBC chairman is a rigorous process. It's independent. There are two, two stages to it. It's transparent and published online. And Mr Sharp's appointment went through that full process. So as I say, it's slightly complicated story, but it does seem pretty outrageous. So you've got three characters, Boris Johnson, you all know who Boris Johnson is. He gets to choose who the chair of the BBC will be. As I say, the chair of the BBC, responsible for impartiality. So it seems like it should be a pretty, you know, politically contentious role. Anyway, Boris Johnson chooses his old friend to be the chair of the BBC. And it just so happens that his old friend helped arrange, get a guarantor for him to get a loan of £800,000. Bizarrely, the person who became the guarantor was a distant cousin. I think you have to be at a certain sort of place in the, the class structure of this country to know distant cousins. I've got no idea who a distant cousin of my own would be, which is unfortunate. I wouldn't mind a guarantor for a few loans. But anyway, this guy 
intermediary between Boris Johnson and his distant cousin to get him a loan. Then he gets made BBC chair. You were saying that you wouldn't really know a distant cousin or be able to pick him out of a lineup. The aristocracy moves in very different ways, Michael. Unlike us plebs who have a handful of cousins who annoy you at Christmas time, the entire aristocracy is known as the cousinhood. So there are complex <laughs> webs of marriages and blood ties. Sometimes these two things overlap. And that is one of the things which, you know, literally, you know, socially and economically preserves wealth, power within the hands of the elite. You have a particular kind of class solidarity amongst the establishment. And it's, you know, quite often a family business, shall we say. I mean, I think the main way in which this is damaging for Boris Johnson isn't the naked and flagrant corruption, which I believe is par for the course. Nobody thinks of Boris Johnson and goes, you know what, there is a squeaky clean politician. I mean, I think that the existence of Compromat on the former prime minister must be the worst kept secret in the intelligence services. Absolutely everyone knows that somebody's got something. So nobody thinks of him, of him as squeaky clean. And I don't think this is going to be, you know, wholly surprising that he would abuse what should be selection process, a candidate selection process, which has the public good at heart for his own individual ends. That is totally in keeping with what we know about him. The thing for me, which is interesting, is that you've got a prime minister with an £800,000 hole in his finances, which is being plugged by, you know, a businessman on one hand and, you know, processes lubricated by somebody who wants you know, a very powerful, cushy job on the other, is then it tells you, okay, well, how independent is this prime minister? Who is he answering to and why? And when those things are opaque, when they involve the personal financial interests of a prime minister, a former prime minister, that really is a fatal structural weakness at the heart of our politics. You know, the, the Profumo scandal in the 1960s, which I believe was, you know, when you were a, a lad of nine or 10, Michael, um, was, you know, because you had the minister of war, you know, sleeping with the same woman as a Soviet attache. The idea was, well, hang on, like, what is it that someone has over you? It's a matter of national security. But along comes Boris Johnson, you know, with his grubby little fingers in absolutely every pie, going to, you know, Lebedev's party. No one knows who his other guest was. He was looking, you know, disheveled and rather worse for wear the next day. You know, loans from cronies coming out of his ears and nobody goes or nobody went rather at the critical time when he was, you know, in the running to be prime minister. Does this mean that you are fundamentally unsuitable to take this role? Does this endanger our politics, our democracy, national security in some fundamental way? There was an extraordinary casualness about it. The fact that this is in the public sphere now, maybe it makes it a bit harder if he does want a return to uh, front bench politics or indeed the top job. But I think it's the BBC that comes off worse in all of this, to be honest with you. Yeah, let's move on to the BBC, because, I mean, the allegation here is pretty serious for Boris Johnson, of course. It seems as if 
potentially he gave a very top job to someone after they helped him financially, or at least help sort out his financial situation. It doesn't look good for the BBC, though, either, and especially for their impartiality, if the guy in charge was so close to the then Prime Minister. Apparently, this is nothing new, though, as the Sunday Times explain. The BBC has a long tradition of politically connected individuals acting in senior roles. Gavin Davies, another former Goldman Sachs banker, chaired the corporation between 2001 and 2004. He faced accusations of cronyism from opposition parties as he was married to Sunai, advisor to Gordon Brown when he was chancellor and had previously been a Labour Party member. Greg Dyke, director general at about the same period, had donated £50,000 to Labour. Under David Cameron, chairman of the board included Lord Patton, who was Conservative Party chairman under John Major, and before that, a minister in Margaret Thatcher's cabinet, and Rona Fairhead, who became a Conservative life peer and minister shortly after stepping down from the role. Tim Davey, the incumbent director general, was a Conservative council candidate. However, there is no known precedent of a prime minister selecting an individual who was simultaneously helping them with their personal finances. This does not seem healthy to me. You've got all of these very well-connected people, party donors. You donate 50 grand to a political party and then that political party make you director general of the BBC. You know, we talk about donations getting you a peerage, but at least you're only one of 800 people when you go into the House of Lords. This makes, you know, you become one of the most important people in, in the country or probably the most important person in British media if you end up with a director general job and you get this after donations. Very worrying. The last paragraph, though, is especially damning. This is the first time that it seems as if financial interests have been involved, or at least personal financial interests. And you might think the BBC would want to prove their objectivity by robustly covering this story. But on that front, they didn't make a great start. After the Sunday Times broke the story, the BBC invited this guest on to their main politics show to discuss it. All the parties involved have given... Um, statements to the Sunday Times, which suggest they did everything above board and everything was transparent. I suggest you ask Sir Simon Case, who seems to be the linchpin in both these stories, to come on and say what happened and give, make him do a tick. Secretary, yeah, who's the, the cabinet secretary, who obviously was the cabinet secretary during Nadim Zahawi's time, also was the one that Richard Sharp properly said should be involved if any such introduction was made between him and, and I'm probably on a hiding to nothing, but I'll say also for <laughs> transparency, we'd be delighted to have Simon Case yeah. or indeed uh, Boris Johnson in the yeah. studio any Sunday morning they fancy coming on or even during the week, we'd be happy to go and film an interview with him. Yes, you got that right. That was Boris Johnson's sister, Rachel Johnson. She was on the panel with a former Conservative leader and the director of Tesco. So that was the politically balanced panel, which was on the Laura Koonsberg Sunday show. And you saw there, Rachel Johnson, that objective um, voice of reason, um, no skin in the game, saying that the problem was all Simon Case, not her brother. You know what? Like absolute power to Laura Koonsberg for managing to put together the only panel which could possibly defend the BBC's actions in a case that absolutely stinks to high heaven of corruption and a direct conflict of interest, eh? I mean, you know, producers work hard. So, you know, whoever's doing her, uh, her show deserves a pay rise. I mean, look, do you remember when on the first episode they got the comedian Joe Lyser on and everybody shat themselves? And they said, oh, this makes a complete mockery of the, you know, 
sacred tradition of pundits talking about the news. These shows serve a really important purpose when it comes to holding the powerful to account and informing the public. Like, do, do you remember when everybody was saying that? And and it's great that Laura Koonsberg took all those criticisms on board and went, you know, nothing serves the public good more than getting a disgraced politician's sister on the show to come and defend them as though that's a perfectly normal thing to do. I mean, look, the, the reason why I'm taking the piss is because that whole segment takes the piss out of its viewers, its audience in the country at large. It is so nakedly and obviously biased that you're almost shocked and stunned into silence. What can you say about it other than when it comes to this very cozy establishment club where nobody really is to the right of Tony Blair. They're all friends. They all socialize. They all consider themselves as being, you know, part of the same political and social class and everybody else is on the outside of it. When you see the horrendous cronyism of it at play and when you see what it does to our public institutions, whether that's politics or the BBC, you can't help but think that, yes, you know, Joe Lysa was a comedian. He was on this panel, but he wasn't making clowns out of all of us, which is exactly what Laura Koonsberg and Rachel Johnson are doing. Very well put. Ash, I always enjoy my Monday evenings with you. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And thank you for putting up with all of that terrible news about the people in charge of this country. We'll be back on Wednesday at 7pm. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.